Last week in my sermon, I talked about the uh, lectionary, the three-year lectionary that's now part of uh, reading the lessons uh, at the Eucharist each Sunday. And I gave a little explanation about the emphasis of each of the three cycles, year A, year B, and year C. We're now in year C, and all of the years are driven by what gospel has a pride of place in the Sunday reading. So year A is Matthew, year B is Mark, and year C is Luke, our patron. So we read from Luke most of the time, except occasionally we read some readings from John's gospel, and that's true in each of the other uh, two cycles with uh, Mark and with Matthew. The um, thing that I didn't speak about, which is important, is that one of the benefits of the new lectionary, I say new because uh, we've been doing this for 35 or 38 years in the Episcopal Church, but recently in the last 10 years we've adopted the Revised Common Lectionary, and so there's been an interest in the development of the Revised Common Lectionary to emphasize this, and this is important, Um, You know, most of us, uh, if we read, say, the daily office or we come to church on Sunday, we read little snippets of the Bible, little sections, you know, verse this to verse this. And oftentimes it's difficult. It's not so true in the daily office because you do. You don't get an idea of the great narrative sweep of the readings. And one of the things about the Revised Common Lectionary, and indeed the three-year lectionary, is that we have a narrative, a biblical narrative, that we can read and see uh, where it's going. You read things in sequence and you begin to get the idea of how the early church appropriated this and, and what sense they made out of it. We have to remember that when we read from the Hebrew Bible, Christian people read the Hebrew Bible as predictive of the coming of Jesus. So this grand narrative that we read in the Hebrew Bible is going somewhere for us. It's entirely possible to read the Hebrew Bible on its own without any idea that Jesus is going to come. A lot of people have been doing it for 5,000 years, the Jews, right? But in our case, we read it from that point of view And so today we have some idea now of this kind of continuity that we're seeing. Some of the readings both from 1 Kings and from Luke's Gospel are going to connect. I tell you, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. And then Paul is going to begin uh, his description of his own conversion and its nature in the epistle to the Galatians. And we're going to read from Paul for about four more weeks. So we'll have Paul's theological perspective Uh, from Galatians to ponder as well. So I'm going to preach on all three readings and see if we can get somewhere uh, with this narrative idea. Also, I want to say a word about miracles and how uh, people in our own time think about miracles and have maybe for the last uh, 200, 300 years in Western society since the Enlightenment and how we might understand miracles in a slightly different way or understand them in the way in which the people who were alive when these miracles were purported to have happened understood what miracles were. We read from 1 Kings today uh, about Elijah, and we're also going to read in a few weeks about Elisha. There's a cycle. These two 
uh, prophets, and Elisha will inherit Elijah's mantle. Today, Elijah finds himself in Zarephath. And he goes to Zarephath where there has been a drought, a serious drought, and he visits her and he says, you know, what's going on? She said, I, I need, I'm hungry. And she said, well, all I've got here is a little parched grain and some oil and I'm going to make a cake of it and uh, then I'm going to eat it and we're all going to die. There's the blue picture. So Elijah says, make me a little cake of it too. So she does. And the story says that uh, Elijah tells her that this grain and this oil will not run out until it rains again. And he proves to be right. So they're surviving on this. But after that has been said, and presumably it rains again, which it does, her son becomes ill and dies. She believes, of course, like lots of people in the ancient Near East and probably a lot of people today, if something bad happens to you or you have some terrible health crisis, it's your own fault or it must have been something you did, right? So she's thinking those thoughts. Elijah's remonstrating with God over the fact that he's been put in a bad light and how could he do such a thing when he'd come of being obedient to his wishes. So he goes upstairs and he does some ritual where he stretches himself three times on the boy and after he finishes that and prays to God, the kid uh, is healed. Now this healing story has great resonance in the grand narrative about what signs of the, uh, are of the Messiah, where is the location for the people of the covenant to begin to discover and understand that somehow there is going to be a movement in the history of the people that is going to lead to the messianic moment, which now Christian people say is culminated in Jesus Christ, the unique focus of the divine presence. And so we now will hold that for a moment till we get to the widow of Nain and talk about Paul. We are reading still from chapter 1 of the epistle to the Galatians. And Paul began last week uh, to defend his apostleship and the authenticity of his revelation against people who had come into the Galatian churches and had told them that Paul was preaching a false gospel to them. Today, he continues this with a rehearsal of his conversion and what happened. Now, here's the interesting thing. Paul's recounting of his conversion in the letter to the Galatians does not agree with the account of his conversion in Acts chapters 22 through 28. They don't agree. Now, whose chronology... And whose description of the conversion are you going to believe? Are you going to believe the person that's converted? Or are you going to believe Luke? Who in the book of Acts is at that point after Paul's letters attempting now to say the Jerusalem church and Paul have always been cool. <laughs> right? And there was no tight teeth. 
Paul says he was converted. He was called by God. And ultimately he had spent a life thus far persecuting Christian people. A, a Jew zealous for the law and someone who had achieved beyond his years. But he became aware of the fact through the grace of God that this was not the proper thing to do and he decided now that he was going to devote himself to preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. In the book of Acts, Paul has a conversion experience that absolutely knocks his socks off, blinds him for a period of time, and we have kind of a great story about how he goes to meet somebody, does all this sort of thing. And in the narrative that's in Galatians, it's really kind of a, a, a more low-key conversion experience. I like it. I'll tell you why. Because I think most of us, it's true for me personally, most of us don't have those knock-your-socks-off knock conversion experiences. Most of us come to some species of conversion over time gradually as we begin to see more clearly God's purposes for us and the necessity for us to change the direction our life is taking. And this sometimes takes time. It doesn't happen and you say, oh, that's it now and here I go. So Paul, I think, is speaking about his conversion in a more sensible way as he continues to uh, reflect on what he had done before. In Luke's account, for example, he's present at the stoning of Stephen, holding the cloaks of all the people who stoned Stephen. And perhaps after seeing that scene himself, it had a, a sufficient effect on him that he, ha he began to rethink what was going on and what he was part of. That's a possibility. But in any case, he's talking about what happened to him and then what he did. And what he did was not go to Jerusalem. He went to Arabia and he stayed there three years. And then he went to Jerusalem. And all he met with, according to his account, is Peter. Cephas is the same name for, as Peter. And James, the Lord's brother. And that very well may be what we call now the Council of Jerusalem. So there's support in there for what I talked about last week, that the message, the, the group of churches he's writing to were in southern Galatia and not northern Galatia before the Council of Jerusalem. But this epistle is probably one of the best uh, helps in constructing a life of Paul. And it is also very, very useful in developing the chronology of his missionary work. What happened and when. So we get now from Paul the setup, the authenticity of his apostleship and his conversion and its source. And now next week, stay tuned for him getting into the real nitty-gritty. Justification by faith through grace, participation in Christ all of the heavy-duty things that have influenced Christianity since Martin Luther and the Reformation. So stay tuned. Now, to the widow at Nain. Let me say something first about miracles. <clears throat> Most people, if you are asked them today, and maybe for the last 250 or 300 years, what is a miracle? 
they would say a miracle is something that has happened contrary to the laws of nature. St. Augustine, in the 5th century, said, a miracle is something that happens contrary to the known laws of nature. Remember, Christians, for a long time before we've gotten into this evangelical fundamental, have believed that there are two places we must consult to learn the truth. One is the book of scripture, and the other is the book of nature. And if you get those things wrong... You're not going to get it right. So Augustine says, the known laws of nature. One of the great influences that has produced the view that these are contrary to the laws of nature is a particular theological outlook that started with the Greeks, a guy named Epicurus. You've heard of Epicureans, you probably have heard that term. He believed that God was very distant, didn't intervene, wasn't involved in the affairs of human beings. And in the 18th century, a lot of the founding fathers of this country believed in a theological outlook called deism, which meant God made the watch, he wound the watch, and he set the watch ticking, and is out. You don't have to make that sound when you do that, just you it sometimes helps. And then he's absent. So there are two threads within this deistic view. One is, he's made the watch, wound the watch, is out of the picture, or he made the watch, wound the watch, and occasionally intervenes in human affairs, sort of do a little rewinding, and back out again. Right? So when you begin to think that God isn't active in, inside, uh, that's how you can think about things that happen you can't explain. One of the things is that for Jesus, for the Elijah, for all the people in the ancient Near East, they didn't believe God was out there. They believed God was in here. God was inside, with us. So the things that occurred were the result of God's presence within us. So you read in the Greek New Testament, not healing, or miracle rather, you read deeds of power. You read paradox. That's how they understood them. They didn't know, you know, speak about miracles. They just assumed that from time to time within the creation that God is part of and made and called good, we're going to see things happen that are signs of God's presence and we're also going to see them be affected by individuals that we have understood in the great tradition, the continuity of the people of the covenant and later Christian people who are going to see this and say to themselves, you know, this all fits. If we start reading this, we're going to begin to come and understand where it's leading and how important it is that we're part of all of this. So today Jesus is in Nain. Nain is near a place you may have heard of called Shunem. And Elisha is going to go to Shunem. 
and he's going to encounter the Shunammite woman and he's going to heal her son who died. Do you think there are any connections here? I like that story, by the way, because I don't know, Elisha was acting pretty huffy. He said, call that Shunammite. So he heals her son. Both widows. So in the grand narrative, the people of the covenant read about those two prophets and they say, here's a God who cares about widows. Here's a God who cares about fatherless sons. And here's a God who cares about foreigners. The widow of Zarephath was a foreigner. And the widow of Nain was a foreigner. She was not in. Neither of them. So it is a beginning of the story of people thinking, you know what, when the Messiah comes, when we've read these things, maybe the Messiah is going to be in favor of everybody coming in. Maybe this message is for everybody. And Paul, in his missionary work, has concluded that everybody is in, and he has dedicated himself to preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Those people is the direct translation. Ethnos. So this is a story that Jesus now embodies the work of two of the great prophets of Israel, Elijah and Elisha. And they're going to see that and they're going to think, you know, uh, two and two is beginning to be put together for me. This is particularly important for Luke, why he includes it. There are other stories around at the time, great healers, there were a whole lot of them at the time, who healed people. And Jesus is going to do this. This is the first one he performs where he's not asked to do it. He just does it. He lays his hand on the beer and raises the boy. And it's a deed of power, a sign of his messiahship. And the people there will begin to realize he's very important. And it says, soon his reputation became known throughout all Judea. And what great prophet contemporary with him was known throughout all Judea when he emerged on the scene? John the Baptist who may have been his cousin. And so they're beginning to think, you know, the times may be moving us in a direction here. The coming of the Messiah, the transformation of the world, the affirmation that we are, in fact, to bring the values of the kingdom of God to everybody. You know, when Jesus says the kingdom of God is in you, what it says in the original language is the kingdom of God is right next to you. And that's the affirmation that God is inside. God is near everybody. And even if we don't feel it or think it or believe it, it is so. So in the great sweep, we're beginning now to move in this direction. This week... Think about your life and if you've had ever any con conversion experiences and what they are. Sometimes we have them too and we have to reconnect uh, to what they are because we either forget or get busy. Uh, but uh, remembering what has happened that has been life-changing in your life. Remember that um, one of the things that we believe as people of faith is that God is not absent but always near you. 
God is always faithful and isn't a cutter and a runner. And that knowledge can uh, do wonders. Amen.